0: There was a time in Israel's history when the word of God was lost. Then, while renovating the temple, the people found the scrolls and they rushed it to the king. When the king saw it, he recognized it as treasure. In a similar way, today's classic is a treasure for Christian readers everywhere. Hi, my name is Terence and I'm your host for Reading and Readers, a podcast where I review Christian books for you. Today, i review that handsome piece of work that I hinted at in the last episode. Cur Deus Homo by Anselm of Canterbury. Around 120 pages, published in the late 11th century, 1000 years ago. Cur Deus Homo, translated from the Latin, is Why God Man or Why God Became Man. I read two translations. The first translation is the popular one, meaning the one that appears in Amazon and comes up first in Google. It's the translation by Sidney Norton Dean, which was published in nineteen o three. I read this translation. There were parts I didn't understand, so I went searching for an answer. And in doing so, I discovered this second translation by Jasper Hopkins and Herbert Richardson, which is which was published in the year two thousand. It's more recent which makes it easier to read. And so this is the translation that I will be using for this review. Both translations are available for free. I share the links in the show notes below. Now, I want to give a disclaimer up front. I am not qualified to compare or evaluate Latin to English translations. All I want to do is just read and review Curdeus Deus Homo by Anselm. So if I misunderstood the translation, that's my fault. But if the translator misunderstood the writer, that's the translator's fault. And if the writer, namely Anselm, misunderstood God, that's his fault. Just remember that it is never God's fault. Before Anselm, the church taught that that Christ redeemed us by paying a ransom to the devil. We have a hostage situation, and we had to pay a ransom to the hostage-taker. But it was Anselm who argued that the debt was paid not to the devil, but to God. Augustus Hopkins Strong, in his systematic theology, wrote, I quote, Although many theologians had recognized a relation of atonement to God, none before Anselm had given any clear account of the nature of this relation. Anselm's acute, brief, and beautiful treatise, entitled Cur Deus Homo, constitutes the greatest single contribution to the discussion of this doctrine. Quote. An even stronger praise is John Miley's systematic theology, where he writes, I quote, The treatment of the atonement in a scientific or more exact doctrinal manner really began with Anselm late in the 11th century. His book, though but a small one, is not improperly characterized as an epoch-making book. End quote. Later, he writes, Reviews of Anselm are so common to histories of doctrine, systems of theology, and monographic discussions of atonement that there is little need of special reference. Hi, Reviews are so common such that there is little need of special reference? If only that was true today for the general audience. In Amazon, there are less than 100 reviews for the various editions of this book. In Amazon, it ranks at number 1046 under the category of Christian Salvation Theory, which is not bad for a 1000-year-old book with a Latin title, but definitely shows that not that many people know of this book or appreciate what this book means. Cur Deus Homo is an epoch-making book that is sadly unknown to the common man, the the everyday Christian. So let's try to remedy, remedy that with today's episode. Let's reintroduce a classic to this podcast generation. The book is written as a dialogue between Anselm the writer and his fictional creation Bozo. So I thought it was appropriate that this review be a dialogue between myself the reviewer and my own fictional creation Sobo.
1: It is an honor to be part of this book review. Let's start by asking why did Anselm wrote it as a dialogue? Because we are slow. That's what Anselm
0: said. I quote, "Now issues which are examined by the method of question and answer are clearer and hence more acceptable to many minds." especially to minds that are slow, end quote. So that's what Anselm said. And this probably explains why this book is surprisingly easy to read. Sure, there are long sentences that seem to circle the globe before it reaches a point. This is characteristic of older writings. But there are parts where the dialogue is snappy. The question and answers come in fast and to the point.
1: It's nice to know that it's easier to read. I guess what readers want to know is, is there any reason to read this classic when there are newer books on the same topic written for modern audiences?
0: In the past, in some circles, you just have to drop the name of the book in an argument and everyone knew what you were talking about. The argument here is so tight, it's bulletproof. Forget everything else that I've read, forget everything else that you have read. Anselm's answer is now my answer to the question, why did God become a God-man? And if your answer is, well, he became the God-man because he came to save us, then you have misunderstood the question. The question is rather, why must God save us in this way? To an unbeliever, it is ridiculous for God to die at the hands of a mob. I mean, what would you think if the President of the United States thought that the only way to rescue hostages held by the Taliban was to sacrifice himself in exchange? we would all think it to be ridiculous. Send special forces. Pay the terrorists the ransom. Use diplomatic pressure. Surely, anything is better than exchanging the hostages for the President of the United States or the President's own son. And if he does do so, it must be because he is either powerless or he is not too bright.
1: In this book, Bosso is a Christian who asks questions on behalf of unbelievers. How does Anselm seek to convince unbelievers?
0: First of all, Co Deus Homo is divided into two books. In Anselm's own words, book one proves by rational necessity, Christ being removed from sight as if there had never been anything known about him, that no man can possibly be saved without him. Book two shows with equally clear reasoning and truth that human nature was created in order that the whole man, i.e. with a body and a soul, would someday enjoy a happy immortality. Now, it is too big of a task to summarize what the great Anselm wrote, 25 chapters in the first and 22 chapters in the second book, within the few minutes that I have for this podcast.
1: Undoubtedly so, but please for the benefit of listeners who may need encouragement to read for themselves this wonderful book, what is the gist of Anselm's argument?
0: I don't feel up to the task to give you what you ask for, but I will try my best. As you say, readers should read the book to properly judge how bulletproof is Anselm's argument. In my own words, um, with my own illustrations just to explain things, uh, this is how I understand Anselm's argument. Number one, man owes God a debt. The question becomes, who pays the debt? God? God cannot clear this debt because that would be unjust. If God cleared it, then man would be enjoying heaven at God's expense. There is a debt. Who pays the debt? What if God creates another man to pay the debt? But that new man has no relation to us. Adam sinned. We are the children of Adam. That new man that God just created from the ground cannot pay the debt because he is not part of Adam's line. So, once again, there is a debt. Who pays the debt? We cannot pay. God must not pay. And God cannot create a new being to pay. So, what happens? Now, we leave aside the question of who pays. Anselm also asks, what will you pay to God in proportion to your sin? And uh, Boso uh, and some partner in this dialogue answers. Penitence, a contrite and humble heart, fasting and a variety of physical toil, the mercy of giving and forgiving, as well as, as obedience. When I read that answer by Boso, I thought that was an excellent answer. Wouldn't you say the same? What do you pay to God in proportion to your sin? What do you do after you have sinned. And Anselm brings the hammer down. I'll quote him here at length to give you a sense of how he answers questions. I quote, When you render something which you would owe to God even if you had not sinned, you ought not to reckon it as payment of the debt which you owe for your sin. Now, you owe to God all of the things you have just mentioned. For in this mortal life there ought to be so much love and so much desire to arrive at that end for which you have been created, an arrival whereon to prayer is relevant, and so much sorrow because you are not yet there, and so much fear lest you not arrive, that you ought to experience joy only over those things which give you either assistance in arriving or the hope thereof. For you do not deserve to have what you do not love and desire in proportion to its nature, and over which you do not grieve because you do not yet possess it, but are still in such great danger as to whether or not you will ever possess it. To possess this, it is also a prerequisite to flee from the repose and worldly pleasures, except insofar as you know them to conduce to your aspiration to arrive at this possession, which call the soul away from that true rest, and delight. Quote. So yes I know it's a, it's a sentence that has parentheses followed by parentheses within parentheses. Yes, I know it's uh, it can be a di- bit difficult to follow or even listen to um, and you would have to uh, like myself have to read and reread to see where is he going. Now, uh, we have the leisure, the leisure of doing that uh, over with a book, but in the podcast here, let me just explain, uh, give you a picture of how I understand what he just said. Again, if I ask you, what will you pay to God in proportion to your sin? What do you say?
1: I feel bad, I repent and promise not to do it again. And I commit to live a better life.
0: But that's what you are supposed to do. For example, if I borrowed your car and I crashed your car, you ask me, well, hey, what are you going to do to make things right? You just crashed my car. And what if I told you, oh, I feel bad. Oh, I, oh, I repent. And oh, I promise I won't crash your car again. I, I commit to be a better person. That's all I'm going to do. Thank you. Bye-bye. What do you say to that? you would say, well, everything you said is all in good, but my car is wrecked, it's crashed. So how will you make things right? A debt needs to be paid. So how will you pay? Now, then someone might say, um, okay, I owe God a debt. So now that I understand that I owe God a debt, Um, I will give to God my money, my time, and even my life. I'm talking about full-time ministry into an exotic land far, far away. And I am even willing to be a martyr if God wills it. So I'm paying my debt to God in this way. You see, your, your offer is noted, but what do you have that does not come from God? Everything that you have comes from God after crashing someone's car, would you now take his wallet to pay for the damages? So we come back to the question, how will you pay? As I read the book and the dialogue was very gripping, as I saw that there was indeed nothing. My answer echoes Bozo's in the book. Nothing. I have have nothing to pay the debt with. Now, then he adjusts. Anson then adjusts the question and he says that let us... Or at least that's the way I I imagine it. Let us suppose, let us imagine that there is something that can be given to God. Now, first, this something must be something that God did not give, right? Otherwise, it's just paying for damages from the person's wallet. So it must be something that we did not get from God. Second, this something, this imaginary something, okay, hypothetical something, must be of great worth. Something that is so valuable to God Himself. So we What is this thing that is not given by God and is so valuable to God? And the only answer is simply God Himself, isn't it? There is nothing that God did not give in creation other than Himself. And there is nothing of worth so highly as God Himself. And so we come we get driven, okay, we get driven towards the riddle, the the, the dilemma in cur deus homo, which I simplify as this. We have a debt that man must pay but cannot. And we have a debt that God can pay but must not. And this debt demands that the person who pays is both God and man. And Anselm is able to make these conclusions without any reference to Jesus, (laughs) <laughs> it, is so, it becomes so obvious at the, way, the way he presents it that it's only a person who is both God and man that can pay. So that is the, this summary is the crux of the whole book and when I read the way he, uh, he explained it and it just made so much sense to me and, I, and this is probably why it became such a bulletproof text that people would uh, continuously cite for, for ages to
1: come. Indeed, your summary seems so simple that I now wonder whether there is any point to read the rest of the book.
0: There is. My summary is just a drop, and there is far more good stuff from the book. I mean, you read classics, not just to get the conclusion. I mean, you already know the conclusion, the answer to why God became man. I mean, you can read that in any systematic theology or any uh, uh, website or blog or YouTube. I mean, the answer to that question is, is okay. I mean, it's there. But we read classics not just to get the answer but to see how they get there because the classical writers are often pioneers. They they look at things differently and they ask different questions. They are in a different space, in a different time. So the way they look at things is something that we need to appreciate. And and I just love seeing how um, the the flow of the the logic or the flow of the argument comes uh, across. I mean, for example, let me give you another example. In the book, uh, Bozo and Anselm reach a point where, um, where we conclude that it was necessary for God to save in this way. So Bozo asks the natural follow-up question. If God saves out of necessity, then should we be less grateful <laughs> since, he was compelled, since God was compelled to do so? And Anselm answers, I quote, When he willingly submits himself to the necessity of doing a good work and does not merely endure this necessity against his will, surely he deserves greater gratitude for his good work. For this quote-unquote necessity ought not really to be called a necessity, but ought to be called a grace, since he voluntarily incurred it or holds to it without anyone constraining him. For suppose you willingly promise today to bestow a gift tomorrow, and tomorrow you do bestow it with this same willingness. Although it is necessary that, if you can, you do tomorrow give what you have promised or else be caught in a lie, nonetheless, the one to whom you give this benefit is no less indebted to you for the bestowal of it than if you had not made a promise. The reason for his indebtedness is that you did not hesitate to make yourself indebted to him prior to the actual giving.
1: End quote. You say it's easy to read, but from the quotes, it still sounds intimidating.
0: (laughs) I didn't say it's easy. I said it's easier. Easier than some other Puritan books, uh, books that I cannot finish, that I fall asleep reading, and never got back to. In comparison to those books, Curl Deus Homo is a fun read. It's an easier read. But practically, um, this book appeals to two types of readers. The first type uh, wants to get a good, solid answer to the question, Cur Deus Homo, why did God become a God-man? And this is it. Read this book, be convinced, and Anselm's answer will be your answer. It has stuck to me uh, how he formulated it, and I'm sure that it will be a great encouragement as I read the Bible, as I think about all these things in my my Christian walk. So it's a good book to answer that good question. The second type of reader who might want to read this book are those who want to read something old, who want to read the classics and if this is your first book um i would suggest that you read Pilgrim's Progress, or Charles Spurgeon's Morning from Evening and uh, for Morning and Evening Devotions. Uh, those are probably uh, easier to get into uh, because uh, the first one, Pilgrim's Progress, is a uh, is a story. It's uh, very easy to uh, to follow, like a children's uh, storybook. Whereas the uh, From Morning and Evening by Spurgeon is devotion, so just a short passage, a page or so. It gives you a some understanding of how to read the classics, the the, the, the language, the structures, and so on. Ker Deus Homo is definitely a better read when you have already built up an appetite for classics and you have some idea of what to expect from old books. So uh, those are the really the two types of readers that would probably read this uh, Ker Deus Homo, those who want an answer and those who want a classic. You see, there are some hard-going chapters, uh, even as I express my my love for this book, there are chapters like 16, 17, and 18 that looks into the question of how and why the number of fallen angels will be replaced by redeemed mankind. Say what? Yes, um, (laughs) it is an odd part of the book. Um, The the way the logic is, is such that if uh, 100 angels fell, then God intended intends that 100 people be redeemed to replace those angels who fell. That's the topic of their discussion. Anselm and Boso argue whether God has a perfect number in mind and whether the number is less than, equal or greater than the fallen angels. Now, that discussion seems awfully dated um, when we read it 1,000 years later. But it did make me wonder whether we make similar arguments today. Do we have such blind spots? For example, one of the reasons, one, one of the reasons I've heard for limited atonement, or definite atonement or particular atonement, depending on how you like to call it, is that if Jesus died to atone for everyone, then Jesus' blood was wasted because some were not saved. Um, but Jesus' blood is never wasted, therefore Jesus did not die to atone for all and thus proves uh, limited atonement. But the idea of wasted blood is something that is is assumed to be true, something like the the perfect number sort of thing. And um, I just don't know whether is it something that the Bible actually says, or is it something that we uh, insist
1: on? Are you saying limited atonement is wrong?
0: No, no, I'm not saying limited atonement is right or wrong And this is the wrong place for that discussion Okay, I'm not uh, trying to uh, uh, make a point over here on limited atonement I'm just saying that I've heard the arguments that uh, for limited atonement That 1,000 years later may sound as strange as Anselm's insistence that God loves perfect numbers And in this way, I'm just showing showing how an old book uh, can help us look and ponder at uh, what is happening today, what are the doctrinal or the theological uh, things happening today, and look at them from a different angle.
1: Come to think of it, is there anything that Anselm says here that is wrong?
0: The parts where which I understand the debt that we owe God that only Jesus Christ can pay, I see it as absolutely right and books, movies, songs should be written to make the whole world know this truth. I really think that it's really great. There are parts which I don't fully understand, I'm not confident of, so I don't dare to comment whether they are right or wrong. However, I do share a common critique of uh, Anselm's approach. If you recall, Anselm... Uh, made his arguments in this book without any reference to Jesus Christ. He said that, let us assume Jesus Christ is not in the picture and just by the power of reason alone show that man owes a God a debt, which is a debt that only a God-man can pay, Okay, which I already described uh, briefly just now. The problem is... Um, with this approach, is how far can reason take you? What happens when your impeccable reasoning contradicts the clear words of Scripture? It didn't in this case, uh, which I would argue is not by coincidence, but by design. I believe that as uh, Anselm 1,000 years ago was organizing his thoughts on the question, whenever he thought of a logical or reasonable path that contradicted the Bible, he rejected it. So we never got to see those rejected paths because he only showed us this final solution that looks like uh, there was no scripture or no Jesus Christ in it simply because he pruned, he pruned those paths that did not uh, align with scripture. Because there is a limit to where reasoning can take us. Um, The fall did not only affect our behavior and morality, it also affected our affections and our faculties, our ability to reason. Today, we hear statements like, If God is love, then... And we fill in the blanks with what seems perfectly logical and reasonable to many people, many in the church, many outside the church, and ignore what God actually tells us through His revelation. So Anselm, being a man of his time, uh, puts too much confidence in reason, Uh, not aware how the generations after him will abuse reason, will show the fallenness of reason to deny God, the God that Anselm loves
1: so much. A sobering thought. Do you have any final thoughts for this book review?
0: There is a temptation to read classics for bragging rights alone. Um, I managed to climb this mountain. I managed to finish this book. Um, classics like today's uh, uh, Cur Deus Homo uh, should be read for the satisfaction of journeying with a great mind for a worthy quest. In fact, if I was in charge of the world, I would turn a Cur Deus Homo into a comic book or a children's book. When I was younger, I read many comic books on Western and Eastern philosophy. They were good fun, talking about difficult concepts in comic form. And, and I tell you, it is more than doable to turn Cur Deus Homo into an interesting, a very engaging comic book or children's book. There is a lot of fantastic material over here for comedic value as well. And... Uh, Everybody, once someone does it, uh, everybody, young and old, can get into Anselm's uh, dialogue and actually understand uh, why God had to, he had to become the God-man in order to save us. And so I hope if anybody is listening, has the power to do so, uh, authors, illustrators, uh, publishers, that they will turn Cur Deus Homo into a comic book. Or even better still, maybe I am not aware of this thing and there exists somewhere, somehow in the internet, someone who has already done this. So if so, please, please, please let me know because Co Deus Homo is a great book and one that I wish more people would read. This is a reading and readers review of Co Deus Homo by Anselm of Canterbury. Around 120 pages published in uh, 1093. There are two translations. The popular one is Dean's. A more recent one is Hopkins' and Richardson's. And the links to those two translations are in the show notes below. And I am hoping that there will be a comic or children's version uh, of this book one day. And please let me know if you find one. The next book I review will be a free book the free book for september so subscribe to the reading and readers podcast to hear my review for that book and grab the book before the deal ends until next time thank you for listening